if you will, and turn with me to Luke 17. We read from Luke 1 earlier as we began our service, and let me just remind you what is recorded there from the angel Gabriel. He said of Jesus, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We love passages like this, especially this time of the year as we celebrate Christmas. We love them because it reminds us of Jesus. It reminds us of what Jesus was to do for us and what Jesus has done for us. And so they are the favorite text that we go to during the Christmas season. We love to sing songs that are based on verses like this in the Bible. We love songs that remind us of the great names of Jesus, where we declare that he is wonderful counselor, that he is mighty God, that he is prince of peace and the newborn king and the king of angels, and on and on and on we proclaim his excellency. We do so knowing that this newborn baby boy, the boy that was laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn, was destined for a Sinner's Cross. I hope this morning as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about Christmas, as we enjoy Christmas, that Jesus wasn't just God incarnate that was born into this world and laid in a manger. He was the God who was born into this world, laid in a manger, but later to go to a sinner's cross. Amen? I mean, that's what we celebrate. We know that Christmas is so much more than just the incarnation. It is also the great sacrifice that God has made for us. You see, the God who was born into this world came to seek and to save that which is lost. And hopefully we also with that know that Jesus will return one day. That Jesus was born into this world, that he died in this world, he was buried, he was resurrected, and that he ascended. But there's a promise there that he will return. So theologically, we understand all of those things and we glory in all of those things. But here's one other thing that I hope we get. And that is this Jesus who was born into this world, who was crucified in this world, who was resurrected in this world, who ascended back into heaven but will come again. This Jesus has a kingdom that is here. This morning we sang songs. All of our songs that we've sung this morning have been about this kingdom. It's, it's been about this kingdom that is not just a Jewish kingdom made of Jewish people, but it's about the nations. Right, We sing this morning, let the nations be glad. Who are they glad in? They're glad in the God of gods. They're glad in the King of kings. They're glad in the Savior of the world. And so Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost from all nations. This Christ has a kingdom. As we read through our New Testament, this is obvious. It's clear on every page, especially in the Gospels, that this King has a kingdom, and this kingdom is the kingdom of God. In fact, Luke uses the phrase the kingdom of God 30 different times in his gospel alone. And so the focal point of the entire New Testament is the king, and this king clearly has a kingdom. 
But this focus, however, is not exclusive to the New Testament. The, the focus of kingdoms, kingdomness is throughout the Old Testament. It extends all the way back to the very beginning of biblical revelation where it begins to speak about king with the kingdom. And so this concept of the kingdom of God, I would argue this morning, gives the Old Testament its continuity. It's what makes sense of all of those books in the Old Testament because it's focusing them on a king with a kingdom. And if you know Jesus this morning, you are part of that kingdom. So we got to ask the question this morning, what is the kingdom of God? What is this expression that we see Luke making so much uh, fuss about in his gospel as well as Matthew and Mark and John and the Old Testament and the epistles and the New Testament and the apocalation, uh, well that's a, there's a (laughs) congruence of two different words, I almost said apocrypha and apocalyptic in the same thing there, but what is all these genres of scripture, scripture making such a fuss about when it comes to Jesus? It's about the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Here's a definition I'm going to give you. And if you are, have been with me this past fall in our Old Testament survey class, we've looked at this definition of the kingdom. Here's what it is. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what the kingdom of God is is. It's first presented in Eden. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible there in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is Adam and Eve, the first human beings, living in willful obedience to God. They are God's people in God's place, Eden, under God's rule. This description is also what is portrayed in what we might call the proto-kingdom that's seen even all the way to the very end of uh, of history and the final eschatological, eschatological kingdom of God. And, and then we see it all throughout from the beginning to the end and all the manifestations from Eden to the new Jerusalem. You see, this kingdom was in Edom. And it was there that the kingdom was broken. It's there that the fall took place. And so you begin to read from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. And what you see in the story of Scripture, the the, the progressive revelation of Scripture, is that God's Word is showing us God's activity of restoring or bringing humanity back under His kingdom rule. Just a quick history lesson of what this would have or what this did look like. God's restoration plan, what it looks like. You go to Genesis chapter 11, or chapter 12, I should say, and what you see is God calling Abraham to himself. At that point, he's Abram. And God calling Abram to himself creates a nation of people for himself. He restores humanity into right relationship with himself. He creates a people. That people is Israel. Kingdom begins to flourish there. It continues in the monarchy under King David and King Solomon. We see this kingdom even in the period during and after Israel's exile. The prophets who spoke during that era spoke about a future great day when the perfect and everlasting kingdom of God would come. And so this kingdom is all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament actually concludes with a promise and an expectation of this coming kingdom because it was yet to be fully experienced, yet to be fully inaugurated. 
This declaration was followed by over 400 years of prophetic silence, and it was during this intertestamental period of silence where the people of God, Israel, began to come up with ideas of what this kingdom was going to look like and what it was supposed to look like. And the one we're probably most familiar with is the idea that was concocted by the Pharisees that says God's kingdom is going to be a literal return, a literal restoration of the Davidic kingdom, and there's going to be a literal um, bucking off of the tyranny from Rome. The oppression of Rome is no longer going to be here, and Israel is going to be liberated, and so that's what the Pharisees came up with during this prophetic silence for 400 years. But the Christmas story tells us that after those 400 silent, or four silent centuries, those 400 years of silence, the night skies over Palestine gave way to a great company of angels who declared the glory of God in the highest. They declared the glory of God in the incarnation of Christ. You see, the prophesied son of David had come. He had been born in Bethlehem. He had been born into this world, and he lived for uh, 30 years, a, a regular life, a perfect life. And then somewhere around the age of 30 or 33, Jesus began to make statements like this. Statements like the ones recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where he said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This morning, as we seek to understand how the kingdom is at hand, I believe it's best to recognize that the preaching of the gospel is what brings the kingdom close. Through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus here was saying he creates a people for himself who find their place. They find their residence in him and under his rule. Remember, what is the definition of the kingdom of God? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. So Jesus' statement in one, Mark chapter 1, verse 15 is not suggesting that the ultimate fulfillment had taken place. It's merely hinting that it's near in him. He says, believe on the gospel. Read Matthew's gospel, and you'll see that he repeatedly described Jesus' ministry as that of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Therefore, this morning, as we think about this, I believe we can accurately say that the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, and the kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And so here's what I want to speak to this morning, and it's this. I want to talk about an already not yet kingdom. That, that the sense that Jesus' kingdom is here, and yet Jesus' kingdom is coming here. Jesus' kingdom is present among us, but Jesus' kingdom is not yet fully here. And so look with me in Luke chapter 17, and let's pick up reading in verse 20. We've already dealt with the first half of this chapter. We're going to conclude the second half this morning. And next Sunday, I'm going to spend both morning and afternoon preaching on Christmas. We're going to come back on the 31st of December, so two Sundays from now. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. I will preach to that. And then we're going to pick up January 7th in our first Sunday of two services back in Luke chapter 18. So let's begin reading this morning in verse 20. Luke says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. 
And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the house type with his goods in, his, in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Your Bibles may have verse 36 listed next, but more than likely if your Bible's like mine, it's footnoted and it's at the bottom. The reason for that is it's not in the later manuscripts, but verse 36 that's footnoted says basically the same thing as verses 34 and 35. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, that's the disciples, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that proverbial statement has haunted me for about a week. We'll get to that at the end. First half of Luke 17, which we have looked at over the last few Sundays, I think might be best understood as commercials. Everybody likes commercials, right? You watch TV, you love commercials. We don't really like commercials a whole lot, but that's our, our, our uh, human side of things. We just kind of roll on. We want to get to the good stuff. We don't want to have to be um, bogged down with breaks. But the, a commercial, what a commercial does is it tells you about something that's coming, right? It's giving you glimpses of certain things. So when you see a commercial, you see an advertisement, it, it's telling you something about something else. It's trying to pique your attention or perk your attention towards something, some ideas, something to buy. Here, if we look at these first 19 verses of Luke 17, it's given us snip, snippets snapshots of the kingdom of God, glimpses of the kingdom of God. And so in these glimpses, what we see is, is a community of people who repent and forgive. That, that the life of Jesus is being pressed out through the people of God in such a way that they are repenting of sin and forgiving those who've sinned against them. Obviously, the church is meant to practice these graces because they are great features of the kingdom. The fullness, however, is not yet to come. So the church here practices these graces to point to the ultimate healing and to the ultimate restoration to come with the return of Jesus Christ. Today, as we look at these verses that we've read, I want you to see that the kingdom of God, as we think about the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule, I want you to see that the kingdom as both a present and a future domain necessitates our recognition as well as our expectation. So with that said, let me give you five realities and we're going to come back and give you three responses. I know what you're thinking this morning. Pastor, you've got eight points on this bulletin. 
It is 11.14. We are supposed to exit here at 11.45. How in the world are you going to do this in 31 minutes? Have a response time, a advertisement time at the end, a final prayer, and we're on our way to lunch. How in the world is that going to happen? God is sovereign over th all things, and he can lead us in that. The Bible says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So let's get started. Five realities of an already not yet kingdom. Number one, the first reality I want you to see is this. The kingdom is present spiritually. So what we see in verses 20 and 21. The kingdom is present spiritually. See, the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing and the Pharisees that were present in this day and age in which Jesus is conducting ministry expected a literal, physical kingdom on earth. I mentioned that earlier. They wanted to see David's kingdom, King David's kingdom restored, and they wanted to see Israel liberated from Rome. For this reason, they looked for an earthly ruler. They were looking. This was a real strong messianic season of history. It had been that way for 100 to 200 years as the people of God were looking for a Messiah, looking through Scripture and trying to figure it all out. They believed the prophets, and they believed the prophets' prophecies about a coming Messiah. They were looking for an earthly ruler. By doing so, they misunderstood the nature of God's kingdom. You see, it's not a kingdom that's marked with borders, and it's not a kingdom that's established through war, and yet that's the lens through which they were looking. They wanted to see a kingdom that was physical, and they never thought about a kingdom that was spiritual. But Jesus tells us here in verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, what do you mean it's in the midst of us? Well, we're not a kingdom. We're an oppressed people. We're a conquered people. Rome rules over us. Sure, we got these semi-kings. We've got King Herod and King Herod the Great, King Herod Antipas and Herod the Great, and we got all this history here, but we are not a kingdom. There's no border. There's no war that's given us freedom. But what Jesus is teaching us is, is that this is a spiritual kingdom, and it exists within the hearts of the redeemed. He says, it's in the midst of you. You see, Jesus, as the king of this kingdom, stood right before them. They're looking for a ruler. They're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a king, and they missed it because they were looking with the wrong eyes. They were looking with physical eyes and not spiritual eyes. But Jesus was before them. He had been preaching the gospel all throughout Judea, all throughout Galilee, all throughout Samaria. He'd been doing this for a couple years. And many had responded to him in faith and with repentance. Therefore, the kingdom of God was truly in the midst of them. Where was that kingdom? It was in the hearts of the people. It was in the hearts of those who had said no to sin and yes to Jesus. They now were part of his kingdom. They now were part of his church. But the Pharisees were blind to it because... It was a spiritual kingdom. So this morning, the first reality we need to see is the kingdom is a, is a present, spiritually real thing. Second reality is this. The kingdom is coming physically. The kingdom is coming physically. So while the Pharisees could not see the kingdom, Jesus here does make it clear that the disciples could not miss it when it showed up. He warned them of chasing down every claim of Jesus' return. He says, hey, if someone says, I found Jesus, he's over there, or look, Jesus is here, he's returned, don't believe it. Because when Jesus does return, or when I do return, and the kingdom returns with me, Jesus says there will be no mistaking it. 
because it is coming physically. The kingdom is here present spiritually, but it is also coming spiritually. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that when he returns and he enters time and space. Remember, Matthew 28 tells us in other places, Jesus ascends to the Father. And there, as the disciples stand on that mount, looking up into the sky, all of a sudden an angel says, what in the world are you doing? As Jesus has just ascended, he will descend. Basically, go about your business, live your life in the kingdom, and wait for Jesus' physical return. Jesus will break into time and space, and his kingdom will come with him. And so Jesus, when he returns and when he ushers in his kingdom rule over the earth, what Jesus is telling us here is that every eye will see it. How in the world does that happen? How is every person in the world going to see that we live on this thing as the globe? And so as Baptists, we like to talk a lot about the eastern sky. Did you know this morning that the people that are buried right out here in this cemetery are all buried with their heads on this side of the grave? This side of the cemetery. Why is that? That's because that's the east. And so symbolically, what we're saying as Christians, when we bury our loved ones, we're burying them in such a way so that when Jesus returns and he resurrects those bodies, they are caught up to the Lord in the sky, they're going to resurrect and they're going to see Jesus because he's on the east. Well, how in the world can that happen everywhere in the world? Well, there's a lot of things that go into that. Jesus is everywhere at once. But think of it this way. Taking this verse, verse 24, what Jesus is saying here is this. When the kingdom returns physically, it's going to be like a 1,000, 24,000-mile-long lightning bolts simultaneously ringing the earth. Somehow, someway, everyone will see Jesus when he returns. There will be absolutely no mistaking this great day of the Lord as Jesus physically returns to the earth. So the kingdom is coming Physically. Thirdly, I want you to see this reality, and that is the kingdom is unexpected. Verses 26 through 30 gives us this picture of the kingdom not being expected. So while the fullness of the kingdom's coming will be undeniable, Jesus is clearly telling us here that people won't expect it. He says that in the days of Noah... Just like those days, as Noah's building this boat, as he's talking about judgment through the floods... They never thought twice about it. They went on their li- with their lives. They, they did their daily things. They got up in the morning and they fixed breakfast and they had lunch and they had dinner. They, they went to work. They spent time with family. They went to sleep. They did all of these things every single day. And then one day the flood came. The same was true of Lot. He talks about how Lot, in the days of Lot, in the immorality, the debauchery, and the awful sinfulness in Sodom and Gomorrah, even as Lot told his sons-in-laws, judgment's coming. No one believed him until the fire and the sulfur fell from the skies. So the Bible would lead us to believe that while Noah constructed this ark, he preached repentance and warned of God's judgment. It would lead us to believe that as Lot warned his sons-in-law of the judgment coming, no one believed him. And when it happened, it was too late. So in both situations, the people were so captivated, think about this, so captivated by the hum of a busy world that they failed to consider the announcement of God's salvation from his judgment. That's what's going to happen one day when Jesus physically returns to this earth and his kingdom is fully 
revealed and fully actualized in this world, people will be so preoccupied by the hum and the business of life, they will fail to mention or fail to recognize Jesus' kingdom when it comes. It's what's happening now. People don't see it. They don't see their need. They don't see the, the, the kingdom here spiritually and their need for the kingdom of God within their own lives. And so in like manner, when the king returns, most people will not expect him. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, that it will come like a thief in the night. Do you ever expect the thief to come? No. Because if you expected him to come, you would be there to thwart his intrusion. But because you don't expect it, it happens. The kingdom is unexpected. Fourth reality I want you to see is the kingdom brings judgment. See this in verses 27 through 30. You see... He's, been, he's mentioned Noah. And what is Noah associated with? What is that big thing he built? The ark, right? I would encourage you, if you ever, ever have time or would ever like to go and see a replica of that, I would encourage you to go over to northern Kentucky and to see the ark, a life-size replica of that. It'll absolutely change your life and how you understand the Word of God and what it teaches about the ark. But when you think about the ark... I want you to know this about it. It is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, you say, Pastor, what do you mean by a type of Christ? It means it preaches the gospel through this, this picture, this, this, this situation, this item in Scripture. It is a type of Christ in the sense that it's a vessel of salvation that safely carried Noah and his family through the judgment waters of the flood. And what does Jesus do for us? Jesus is the one who carries us over safely through the judgment of God poured out on humanity. His blood covers us. His blood protects us. His blood guides us and prevents the judgment of God to overtake us. And so as we read the story of Noah, we need to make sure that we see Jesus in the story. Likewise, as we think about the story of Lot, Moses tells us about this story in Genesis 18 and 19. In Genesis 18, three men show up at the Oaks of Mamre where Abraham is camping. And these three men begin to have a conversation with Abraham. They tell him many things. But before they depart, they talk about, or one of those men talks about what's about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. They warn of the judgment that is coming. One stays back with Abraham and two leave to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe the one that stays with Abraham and continues to reveal what is about to happen is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. I believe it's a Christophany there. I believe the, the Lord Jesus is there speaking with Abraham and warning him of what is to come. And the two other men that showed up to the Oaks of Mamre with Abraham are angels, and they go down and do the bidding, the will of God, amongst those two cities. They warn Lot. Here's what we need to see in all of this. We need to see Jesus Christ in the story. In both of these stories, we see the Lord's present and presence and his presence brings judgment to the sinful. Here's what we gain from what Jesus says in this passage. There is coming a day when Jesus will return. And what is this day going to mean for the vast majority of people who are alive at that time? It's going to be judgment. Judgment. You see, when Noah built the ark and he got in the ark, there was only eight of them. Him, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Eight people were saved and floated over the judgment waters of the flood. 
But they did so through Jesus Christ. In the day that Lot was warned of the, the, the judgment coming against the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was him, his wife, and his two daughters and their sons-in-law. He went out and spoke with the sons-in-laws, those two men. They said, no way, Jose. He told his wife about it, and as they were leaving the city, she looks back and turned to a pillar of salt. See, when Jesus returns, he's coming with judgment. He's coming to judge those who are in their sin and who have rejected his lordship over their life. When Jesus returns, his kingdom will usher in this judgment upon the world, and it will be a judgment of cataclysmic proportion. It will be a judgment greater than that of the flood. It will be a judgment greater than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what I mean by that. No one will escape the just and the full wrath of God. Paul, speaking of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains among a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The kingdom brings judgment. This brings us to a fifth reality, and that is the kingdom brings salvation. The same verses here teaches us about salvation. There's judgment for some. There's judgment for those who are unrepentant and rebellious. But for others, salvation will come because they have turned from sin and they have faith into Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. You see, when an expression of God's kingdom power is poured out in the floodwaters, Noah and his family were saved through the ark. Similarly, when God's kingdom power over the domain of darkness was expressed in Sodom, it was Lot and his two daughters who were saved from the fire. So on that day when Jesus returns and he brings his kingdom with him, what does he bring with him? He brings salvation. He brings peace. He brings relationship. He brings the fullness of everything that we have faith into as followers of Jesus Christ. So those who've embraced Jesus on this day when Jesus comes and that eastern sky is split and the whole world sees it, it will be a day of rejoicing for us. It will be a day of celebration for us. It will be a great day of glory in God. Because as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom is present spiritually. The kingdom is coming physically. The kingdom will be unexpected. The kingdom will bring judgment, but the kingdom will also bring salvation. So in these five realities that we see of the kingdom of God, there is both a present as well as a future domain, and all of it necessitates our recognition as well as our expectation. So with that said, let's look at three ways to respond to it, and we're right on time. Right on time. In my world, we're always right on time. Here's the first response for us this morning. Refuse to be tied to the things of the world. Refuse to be tied to the things of the world. Look at verse 31. I know these verses are troubling you today. He says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. What is Jesus saying here? I believe Jesus is making the point that when the day comes for his return, it will not be a time for going and getting your stuff. It's not going to be a time where you're saying, well, here comes Jesus. I've got to go pack a bag. Here comes Jesus. I've got to hook the U-Haul up. 
to my life so I can get my stuff into heaven. We preachers like to sometimes comment that we've never preached a funeral where there's a U-Haul connected to the hearse, right? Never seen that. Why is that? It's because you can't take what's in this world to heaven with you. The only thing you can take to heaven with you is the people you win to Jesus Christ. It's the people that you lead to faith in the Lord. So the Lord here is making this point that when he returns, it will not be a time for getting possessions and going back to your homes. So one cannot help but wonder why Jesus would make this statement. Well, it seems that this event would be so glorious that everyone would understand this, that it would eclipse anything and everything this world has to offer. And yet, obviously, there are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ that when Jesus returns, their first thought will be, i got to get my stuff. David Gooding in his commentary suggests that some people are so taken up with material things that they cannot imagine life without them, even life in eternity. Have you ever thought about that? That you love the things of this world so much that you want those things in heaven. What happens to the things that you have in this life? They, they fall apart, they rust, they deteriorate. Right? They break. Everything in your life, every physical thing you own, it is in a constant state of deconstruction. That's, that's just a fact of life. And yet we want to take those things with us. Or if it's not a physical thing, if it's a relationship or something like that, it's always in a constant state of imperfection. Your marriage isn't even perfect. You say, I got the greatest marriage in the face of the earth. Great, that's awesome. But you're not perfect in that. You also can't take that into heaven. Do you know you're not going to be married in heaven? We don't have time to go there. It's a message for another date. Your wife, your husband's going like to be like a brother or sister to you. So Jesus here uses Lot's wife as a great example of this love of the world. You see, when the angels warn Lot and his family to quickly get out of the city, what do they tell them? Don't look back. Don't look back. I've always thought that's an interesting command. Don't look back. Because what happens when you're driving down the road and you see an accident alongside the road? You do the same thing the rest of us do. Drive real slow and look at it. You want to, here's a couple things. You want to know. I'm going into all these tangents. You, you want to know, do I know someone there? Right? You want to see how bad the accident is. You want to see if there's someone hurt because you, you want to pray for them. That's good. We, we want to do those things. I know you have a tender heart, a loving heart. But we just drive slow. We want to look at the event. And so I've always read the story of Lot and wondered, what was the big deal about looking back? I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we want the judgment of God to fall on certain people. And when we say, boy, that's God, I'm glad you got them. They needed it, right? So I've always thought, was, Lot, or was Lot's, yeah, Lot's wife, because we don't know her name. Was Lot's wife looking back because she was thinking, boy, you make them a crispy critter? No. Jesus in this text would tell us she was looking back because she longed for Sodom. She longed for the wicked city. She loved the wicked city. And so while they're fleeing, while they're fleeing in God's salvation, she looks back with longing on the things of Sodom. And the word of God tell us, tells us she became a pillar of salt. See, she nearly escaped the judgment while running away. She broke the command of God and perished. 
She paid the price. The day of the Lord will be like that. Those who look back with fondness for this world will perish. Therefore, the best way to prepare our hearts for the return of the king and his kingdom is to refuse today to be tied to anything this world has to offer. Now, I just want to give you a a lesson in theology here. I, I don't believe that on the day when Jesus returns and you look back or you try to go back to get something, that all of a sudden you lose your salvation. I believe that's indicative of the fact you've never had salvation to begin with. Because when you know Jesus, yeah, you're going to be tempted by all the things in this world, but there's an affection for God and his kingdom that trumps every single thing in this world. And so the people he warns of here that will look back or go back and and desire something of this world, they never had the kingdom and the king to begin with. So we want to be those who live for the king and live for the kingdom. A second um, response is to give your life to the kingdom. Flows right out of this. Look at verse 33 there. I I can't think of a a greater verse that captures this counterintuitive nature of the kingdom. What we see here in this verse, in this whole passage for that matter, is an upside down aspect to the kingdom. According to Jesus, the way to save your life is to not hold tightly and and grasp the things of this world. The way to save your life is by denying yourself, dying to yourself, dying to the things of this world. And you do that by laying your life down in faith. You see, none of us can live for God until we die to ourselves. Until we die to the things of this world and the selfishness of this world world. There's a third response, and that is be ready for the king's return. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus uh, finished his teaching here on the kingdom by explaining that his coming and the ensuing judgment will be subtly discriminant and eternal. See, in all outward respects, two people may appear the same as they share the same bed or work at the same meal, but one will be taken away to deliverance and the other will be left to destruction. Again, these verses trouble us. And we begin to think, oh my goodness, am I the one that's left in the bed for destruction and not taken away, or am I the other? We begin to wonder about that. The point in all of this is to say that God is omniscient. God knows it all, right? God is all-knowing, and he knows our hearts. He knows whether we're a follower of Jesus Christ. He knows whether or not that prayer that we prayed as a kid when we walked down the aisle, we took the preacher by the hand, and we were dunked in the water after that, maybe the week after that, and we've been living this Christian Baptist life. He knows whether that's actually genuine faith. And if it's not genuine faith, what happens? You're the one that's left. You're the one that experiences judgment. You're the one that's going to be the crispy critter. Outward appearance will count for nothing because God knows the hearts of everyone. And so how can a person get ready for the king's return? We should heed the words of Jesus that I mentioned earlier in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. We rightly respond to the kingdom by refusing to be tied to the things of this world, giving our lives to the kingdom, and being ready for the king's return. This morning, are you ready for the king's return? Here's what I know about people, Christian people. We don't really think about the king's return. It is something we hear loud preachers like myself say occasionally, and we think, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome. But for the most part, my experience has been is that the most or the majority of Christians rarely think about the king and his kingdom and the return. 
Evidently, the Lord's warning not to return to the city or to one's home here in the text led the disciples to imagine that the judgment would have been focused in some particular area. Because if you look there in verse 37, they ask him, where, Lord? Like, where is this going to happen? Where is the return of Jesus going to take place and the kingdom going to take place? And where are these people going to be left out? And, and so Jesus gives this really mysterious and, and proverbial answer. Look there in verse 37. The ESV translates it, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, if you're a deer hunter, and because you live in Powhatan, you know deer hunters, we understand this verse, right? Physically. Right? You look around, you think, well, there's deer hunt. There's deer, obviously, out there that's been dropped, and so those carcasses are there, and, and the vultures are circling. I, I killed a deer earlier uh, this season, and uh, I... Um, took the remains and I put it in the woods behind my house because here's what I know about what God's creation is. He's, he's created some things that will take care of those nasty, smelly things, right? And sure enough, 24 hours later, not a scratch left. Picked it all clean, right? Who did that? Buzzards, vultures. And so he's saying here that where the spiritually dead are, there will be judgment. That's what this statement means. And so we know that Jesus has come into this world. And so we celebrate his arrival right now, this season, every single year, the season of Christmas. We know Jesus was born into this world to offer his life as a ransom for sin. We know that he accomplished that ransom on the cross, which was followed by a physical barrier, burial, a physical resurrection. Then we also know because the Bible tells us that for 40 days, Jesus, in a resurrected body, walked the earth. He preached, he taught his disciples. And then he ascended to heaven. But in those 40 days, he taught them of his promised return. He left behind a spiritual kingdom that's comprised of everyone who has repented of sin and faith into him for forgiveness. And we know this kingdom to be called the church, expressed locally. It's an already presence in the world, preaching the gospel and inviting sinners to respond in faith to the Lord Jesus as Savior and as King. We also know there's will be a day when Jesus returns in the fullness of this kingdom. So right now, we are part of this kingdom. As he said, it's in the midst of you. That's us. That's the brother or the sister church down the road. That's the sister church across the state. That's the sister church that we have on the, among the nations of the world. We are all part of the kingdom of God that is in the midst of this world. We also know Jesus is coming, and that day his fullness will be brought in. That day will bring an end to the offer of repentance and faith. See, the kingdom doors at that moment will be shut to those who are still in their sin. It's like the days of Noah. It's like the days of Lot. There was a day when Noah was building the ark, warning the people, preaching. The Bible tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. And so the people mocked at him and they laughed at him and they didn't believe him. But there was a day when Noah and his family got in the boat and what happened to the door? It's shut. No one else can get in. And the judgment came. And there was a day where Lot was saying, judgment's coming. we got to get out of the city. We, can't, we don't have time to take some stuff. we got to go. Let's not look back. And some didn't go, and one looked back, and judgment fell. This morning, we read this text, and we think about this already and not yet kingdom. We know that it is a true reality. We know that it's coming. We know all of these things, and we believe them. Here's what we need to take for ourselves today. What kind of person am I? 
Am I those like those in Noah's day that mocked and laughed and disbelieved Noah and then was left on the outside? Or am I one of those like Noah that says, I believe what God has said. And I've responded in faith to what God has said. And so I'm on the inside. I'm in Christ. I'm being ferried across the judgment waters of God, safe and secure. Not because I'm good, not because of anything that I've done, but I just simply in faith responded to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel message. Which kind of person are you? Are you the type of person like Lot who who believed God and you fled the city and you're protected in all of that? Or are you like those who disbelieved Lot and you stayed in the city and you're in the city today and you're under the judgment of God? There's only two types of people in this world. It ain't rich and poor. It ain't educated and uneducated. It ain't Republican and it ain't Democrat. It is I am lost or I am saved. I am a rebellious sinner or I am a forgiven sinner. Which one are you this morning? Let's pray. Father, this morning, this passage screams to us the beauty of the Christmas message. We thank you for the gospel that's presented here. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for this juxtaposition of two types of people. Those who have faith into Jesus and those who are rejecting Jesus. This morning in this room, there are both types of people. There are those who, like myself, have given their lives to Jesus. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together, but we're on our way. There are others who may be... Religious, they perhaps are hearing the gospel for the very first time in their life, but they are not in Christ. They have yet by faith to turn from sin and to turn from you, turn to you. And so I pray this morning that as this message, this passage sets on our hearts today, that we would respond in faith. Those of us who are Christians, Father, may we lean into the gospel that much more. Not saying we need to be saved, but glorying in our salvation because of what Jesus has done and now offering that to others. And for those who need to be saved, need to be forgiven of sin, this morning I pray they would respond in faith saying yes to Jesus. No to sin, no to self, no to building their own kingdom, but yes to Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about the gift of God in the person of his son so that we could be forgiven of all sin and be reunited with the God who created us for himself and for his glory. So that's our prayer. That's our appeal this morning. Pray your spirit would lead us in that as we respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.